0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Crime Scene. This is a fun one. I'm going to really enjoy. There's a little bit of background noise. I have my windows open. We're in the middle of an extreme heat wave here in May in Cleveland, which is not the warmest place. But when it gets hot and humid, it gets hot and humid. So apologize for any background noise. Um, Actually, I just wanted to tell you, uh, Plus Club members, there is a video meet and greet with me on May 27th at 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's May 27th. That's a Monday at 10 p.m. Eastern time. All you have to do is go over to jimherald.net to scroll down three or four posts and you'll see virtual video meet and greet with Jim on May 27th at 10 p.m. ET. You click on that and then it'll take you to the registration if you are, in fact, a member. So we very much enjoy you uh, tuning in. Thank you. This is a fun one. This is actually, actually about a mob war in the middle of my hometown, Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, we get to talk to an author who has made a major motion picture or written a book that a major motion picture was based on about that mob war. It's pretty cool. Uh, Stay tuned. Here it is, the crime scene. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's crime scene. Welcome to the crime scene. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again, and I'm really excited about the show. Been wanting to do it uh, a long time. The schedules didn't didn't match up, but now we've got the person on the line. I've been wanting to talk to for a couple of years now, and this is near and dear to my heart because I, as many of you know, I'm from the Cleveland, Ohio he- area here in the U.S. And uh, people have many conceptions of Cleveland, Ohio. Now, obviously, right now, if you're interested in true crime. There's a horrible case that's come out of uh, Cleveland with the three young women who were uh, kidnapped uh, for 10 years plus. Just a horrible, horrible thing. And uh, we pray for them and and wish them best. And moving on from that, but uh, in terms of crime, Cleveland has a, a legacy that many aren't familiar with, the the legacy of organized crime, going back many, many years. And we have a perfect person to talk about that with. It's Rick Perello. He is our guest. He is an author. He is also the person behind the movie, or the creator, of To Kill the Irishman, The War That Crippled the Mafia. Now, that was his book. That was turned into a major Hollywood release with people like Christopher Walken, an uh, uh, excellent movie that I really enjoy. It's near and dear to my heart because I'm very familiar with the area where all of this happened, and we can't wait to talk to him. He's also a police chief in suburban Cleveland. He wears many hats. Uh, this top cop gave up a successful career in music. He actually spent almost three years traveling internationally as a drummer for Sammy Davis Jr. to pursue his interest in law enforcement. He took up writing, too, and now... Again, he's been at the movies with that with that great movie, and it's interesting because his involvement or his family's involvement in this area goes way back. And we'll talk to him about that. Rick, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. So I have
0: to ask you. I mean that's a that's a diverse background. You've you, you've been an author. Uh, your book is turned into a successful movie, uh, and you were a musician. Now, how did what exactly spurred your interest in the mafia?
1: I was going to say that was quite an introduction there, Jim. I, I thank you. And, <laughs> and, uh, I have really been blessed with uh, success in, in, in more than one area. As far as my interest in organized crime, you know, when I was a kid, uh, probably you know, 10 years old or so, I started hearing things that my grandfather had been killed and it had something to do with the mob. Uh, I, I didn't know much. I, I, I knew that it had happened sometime back in the 1920s or 1930s. It was it was mafia-related, and that was it. My father didn't tell me much. And uh, as I started getting older, uh, curiosity caught up to me. I started doing a little bit of uh, research, and I found that the uh, my grandfather's murder and the murder of three of his brothers, my uncles or great-uncles, were... Uh, was really at the center of a story that was the beginning of the Mafia in Cleveland, and uh, it just you know my research just spiraled from there, and um I knew someday that it that it had to be a book, and I was determined to be the one that would that would write it.
0: Now, you did write a book about that. I actually have that book as well. Tell us just a little bit about that book.
1: Uh, the rise and fall of the Cleveland Mafia is the story of um, the beginning of the Mafia in Cleveland, and it basically follows two families of brothers, the four uh, the four Leonardo brothers and the seven Pirello brothers, in uh, what was known back then as the Sugar War. And the Sugar War was a, a, a series of battles over control of corn sugar. And corn sugar during Prohibition was a uh, lucrative industry to be involved as a key ingredient in the making of corn liquor, which was very, very prof- profitable back then. Uh, we're talking about you, you know back in the in the Roaring Twenties. It was a huge story, and uh, sadly, as with the case of many um, uh, mob-related industries and their control of those industries, there was a lot of bloodshed uh, that that resulted in the battles that were waged and so forth. And uh, it, it it follows the um, the path, additionally, of one of the uh, descendants of the Leonardo family by the name of Big Angelo Leonardo or Big Ange Leonardo, who um, as a teenager avenged his father's murder and then uh, came up through the ranks of the Cleveland mob to become the one-time acting boss. And then, when when um, uh, the 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 uh, dominoes began to tumble, if you will, in the 1970s after the murder of Danny Green. Angelo becomes the most, uh, or the highest-ranking mafia boss to to betray the Sicilian code of silence and go to work for the uh, go to work for the government. There's actually a, a documentary um, that was recently completed and, uh, and uh, made its 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 debut at the Cleveland Film Festival.
0: And by the way, we have a great film festival here in Cleveland, one of the best oh, in yeah. the country, actually. That's far. Um, I mean, it's recognized nationally and internationally, but but, uh, among film people, but among the general populace, people don't understand such a great event. But one thing I was just going to throw in there, and we will get to Danny Green in a moment because I think that's what I really want to talk about a lot. But uh, there's one figure uh, in law enforcement that people don't necessarily associate with Cleveland. They associate him with Chicago. Uh, from the uh, television show The Untouchables, played by Robert Stack, and later the movie by Kevin Costner. And that's Elliot Ness, who fought the mob in Cleveland, correct?
1: Yes. Well, he he did. He also fought um, uh, corruption in the the, uh, police department. I believe that's the primary reason that he was brought in as uh, as a safety director back then, uh, after his uh, uh, days uh, bringing down Al Capone.
0: So, people don't know that about him, and I always think that's that's fascinating. In fact, there used to be, and I think it's torn down now, but I think it was somewhere in Cleveland in the central area. There was actually, you could still see it in the 80s, and I remember seeing it this uh, Elliot Ness for mayor of Cleveland, if you remember that. That was very cool. Now, on to, um, on to Danny Green. Now, first of all, I want to set the stage. When people think about the mob in America, they think about New York and Chicago primarily. Right. But Cleveland had a pivotal role and was important. Talk to us about the role of Cleveland in the mafia in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s.
1: You know, Jim, at one time, there were um, probably two dozen, approximately, give or, give or take a couple, of crime families. Um, the eastern seaboard major cities, uh, five in New York, you know, the five uh, New York crime families, Midwest, uh, Chicago, uh, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Kansas City. So it wasn't just the five families in New York and, and, and then in Chicago, and, and then some, some people might associate Las Vegas, of course, with the mob, too. Uh, but Cleveland was, was one of them. And at one time, when you go back to the 30s and 40s, uh, it, it, it is said that Cleveland was really third in power after Chicago in New York uh... because they were just a key location during prohibition being across from Canada and the lake and, and, and uh... uh... the the uh... The jewish syndicate the the uh... the cleveland syndicate or the jewish boys the mobsters here were very powerful uh... allied with the mayfield road mob um... here in cleveland and associated uh... closely with the uh... mega mobsters like lucky luciano and uh, Meyer Lansky in in New York. So at one time, Cleveland was really highly, highly ranked among among the uh, crime families across the uh, across the country. Uh, as as decades would go on, their influence um, uh, their influence waned. But uh, once you got into the seventies, into in, the story of Danny Green, I know you want to get to that. Um, they they come up again as being a very important uh, part of what would happen nationally. Uh, to to the uh, to these mob families.
0: Now, Danny Green, let's talk about him. Who was Danny Green, and where were the circumstances he grew up in?
1: Well, you know, a lot a lot of people don't realize Danny Green was actually a, actually a mafia associate. Um, he got involved with the mob. He, he grew up in Cleveland. Uh, he had a very tough child. childhood. Grew up on the streets. His mother. His mother, or I should say. First, he, his mother died uh, shortly after he was born. He bounced around as far as where he lived uh, wasn't taken in very well by uh, the the um, uh, his step family of, uh, that his uh, you know his father remarried, and it just didn't uh, uh, fit in very well with them. Uh, wound up with a grandfather for a while. Uh, was uh, spent some time at Parmadale Orphanage, Catholic Orphanage, and and really grew up on the streets. Uh, pretty tough. Kid, uh, as he got older, became very, very uh, 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 proud of his his Irish roots. was very well read, uh, and uh, and then he got involved with the Longshoremen's Union, the International Longshoremen's Association, as a dock worker, and eventually um, was elected president. Only a couple of uh, years later, to be ousted for. Stealing from the union. Now, at this point, he had uh, become associated with some key Cleveland mob figures, uh, such as uh, Frank Brancato and uh, Shander Burns, thereby becoming a, a, a mafia associate. And uh, from there, he he set his eyes his uh, set his uh, his eyes on the uh, throne of the Cleveland mob, really, uh, and saw. Uh, that there was no reason why the irish couldn't uh be in, be in charge of the um of the crime family in cleveland This saw no reason why it had to be the uh the italians who had been uh you know had been in charge for for decades
0: and that brings up an interesting point green was very protective and proud of his irish heritage wasn't
1: he he oh he sure was yeah yeah
0: Now, um, I do have to ask, and I want to talk more about the story of Danny Green, but why did you pick him? I mean, in Cleveland, he's a big deal. I mean, the Danny Green story, and I think the dramatic way he was killed— is a big part of that i still remember as a little kid uh... seeing it on tv you know the film i think they were still doing film at that time in the in the late seventies when uh... when he uh... passed or was passed um... but why did you say this is the story i want to pursue because as you said cleveland has a rich mob history you could you could pick any number of people
1: Well, that's a good question and, and i'll tell you jim once i finished the rise and fall of the cleveland mafia I, I, you know, which is a project, it was a labor of love because I was writing about family members, but it was a, a long project, it took me nine years uh, from when I started to, to when that book finally came out, and when my wife and I celebrated and got, and I got that book in my hand from the publisher... I vowed, I looked at her, I said, uh, or prior to that, I said, I would never try and do this again, you know, <laughs> never nine years, it just took too long, uh, but once I got that book in my hand when we were celebrating, I thought, you know what, i got to do this again, and I started thinking, what's the next book going to be, and Danny Green just popped out at me because it's, it, it, it's, it's the... Um, this story comprises the end of the story in The Rise and the Fall of the Cleveland Mafia. But more importantly, I think it's just the fact that he was such a fascinating character. I do a lot of presentations uh, around Cleveland about the history of the mob, and I, recently someone asked me, how come you never did a book, or how come there was never a book written by anyone about John Scalish? Well, John Scalish right. was the Cleveland mob boss for decades, as you know. And I, I, it didn't take me more than a few seconds to uh, to to come up with the answer to that, and that's just because John Scalish was not a fascinating character. He was a very powerful character, and he was um, at at the top of the of the crime family here in Cleveland uh, for decades. But he wasn't a fascinating character. I think most people like to read. or or, or watch a movie about uh, a fascinating character and Danny Green was was just that. He was a fascinating character. He went up against the mob and nobody, unless you were in law enforcement, went up against the mob. He was fearless. Uh, He wasn't Italian, which I I love about him. He was Irish, you know. And um, uh, so it's, it, it, it's fun to write about uh, and it was fun to research about uh, a different aspect of organized crime because really every ethnicity out there has, has been represented or has had representation in organized crime, whether they're black, Jewish, uh, Italian, Irish, what have you. So here was a non-Italian mafia associate, fascinating figure, goes up against the mob. They try and kill him numerous times. He survives numerous attempts, and, and of course, the rest is, uh, is history.
0: You get the sense when you read your book and, and watch the movie and read other things that have been said about him that he kind of thought nobody could take him down.
1: Is that accurate? Oh, it is. It absolutely is. I mean, even even um, uh, in law enforcement, I, I think he, he uh, you know, he was, it's well known that he was a, uh, a confidential informant for the FBI. And that started back in the '60s, but he wasn't an FBI informant out of any um, sense of, of of patriotism. He, you know, that was uh, one of his uh, tactics. You know, he was a great battle tactician, and and um, which uh, you know I think goes to the the sense that he thought of himself as a great warrior, especially a, a Celtic warrior. But he, um, that w- it was just his way of, of, of being able to provide information to the FBI that and by providing that information might help him in his battles against his enemies here in Cleveland. Uh, just, just a fascinating character all around. And, and the fact that Hollywood came knocking before uh, that book To Kill the Irishman even was on the shelf uh, speaks to, that, um, to him being such a fascinating character.
0: Now, I do want to talk to you briefly a little bit about that experience of uh, working with Hollywood and creating a movie, because that has to be, you could write a book on that in, in itself, I'm sure. But I, I do want to ask the tool that he used to propel himself uh, to a very prominent position or was a union. Now, I'm not anti-union. My dad was a steel worker, and I think unions have done a lot of good things for people, but I think uh, one would have to be um, totally oblivious if we didn't say that there had been some corruption with certain unions as it relates to the mafia. So can you talk to us about how he kind of wheedled his way to the leadership of the, the the Longshoremen's Union and how he used it as a tool to uh, further himself financially and uh, in, in terms of just in terms of his overall power?
1: well you know my my uh, my father Ray Perello was a uh, union official he was a head business agent for the musicians union and I could tell you jim it it's it's no secret certainly in Cleveland there were a lot of mobbed up unions uh even um you wouldn't would you think of that in the case of the musicians union i wouldn 't say that they were, but they certainly had their connections and it wasn't just my father you know they they were um, you know he and my father was sort of on the fringes uh with, with some of the people that were um, actually at the top of some of the more uh, the unions the union that you would consider mobbed up, like the Teamsters, um, the union. But but Danny, uh, yeah, he did utilize the um, his power in the union. But I don't think it mattered where he started off. I think he was just destined to take whatever control he could get, and and move on from there. But it was by his his involvement as an official in a labor union, whatever union, it, 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 you know, it didn't matter. It just happened to be the Longshoremen's Union. And, and he utilized that position in the context that he would make, hanging, hanging around places like the theatrical to meet different uh, union figures and uh, uh, mobbed-up union figures and just mobsters who, who, who were just, who were just mob, uh, mobsters who uh, they might not be directly connected to any labor union. And I think this was um, just part of a, a, um, a, a destiny for, for Danny Green that he would utilize those um, those contacts and, and the power he gained, uh, the the uh, resources and so forth, to just propel himself forward and then sort of take a different uh, a different road um, uh, in, in moving into the uh, organized crime arena here in Cleveland. But it could, it could have been any union, and really it could have been any organization that he was with. But but in this case, the the Longshoremen's Union. And the contacts that he made as a result of that, that um, uh, d- directly led him to cross paths with important uh, and powerful mob figures.
0: The other thing is is that he did not uh, hide his light under his bushel, as it were. He wasn't uh, he wasn't a technocrat. He wasn't a bureaucratic guy. He was flamboyant. He would go out and do interviews and so forth in the local media to such a extent that. Uh, well, you wouldn't think it was too smart, but he certainly did it, uh, didn't he? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: It, it, it wasn't too smart. And, um, you know, years ago, the Mafia, you know, really any organized crime group, is supposed to be a secret group. And back, in, you know, the 20s and 30s, the Mafia was a secret organization. I mean, come the 1970s, 1980s, they are, and, and now they are the most unsecret organization <laughs> you could have. Anything you want to know about the mafia, you can find out. You pick up a book, uh, listen to the, the latest organized crime. Trial. That's sure to have a uh, turncoat uh, witness, and probably a high-ranking one or well-placed one testifying. There's movies now, um, but but yeah, back then uh, that that wasn't the case typically. So he was um, unusual in that regard. Most mobsters, nine out of ten guys, realize that they had to try their best to stay under the radar. You know, ultimately, I think that's a big part of what did John Gotti in. John Gotti was that flamboyant character. He attracted a lot of attention. He got in the front of uh, uh, big magazines. He, you know, liked to take pictures and liked to play up the fact uh, uh, when he when he had a defeat against the uh, uh, against the feds in, in one of his trials, and, and that just put a bigger and bigger target as the years uh, as the years would go by on his back. But Danny, yeah, Danny was like that. He liked um, he, he he liked. The media. He liked giving interviews, and, and he liked being known for um, having that power, and, and uh, just being a um, a uh, not not only having the power, but also being what what I think he felt was a good person who would do good things for people, who would give uh, those those uh, twenty uh, or twenty five uh, uh, turkeys away during uh thanksgiving and and uh and the holidays to the to the poor people and maybe uh uh provide food or provide uh, college tuition or so forth for uh uh needy uh, needy children that's that was a big part of who he was he was a complex character and i think that's uh that's one of the attractions to him uh in 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 the book and in in uh, the film
0: well, I mean, it seemed like he had kind of nine lives. He did have many close claws with bombings and so forth. And then uh, based uh, on what I read and what you just said, he also saw himself as this kind of invincible um, modern day Robin Hood.
1: He did. He, he, he really did. And, and, and there were, you're right, there were numerous attempts um, to kill him. I mean, they, they shot at him. Uh, they missed, they they put a bomb on his car, the bomb didn't go off, he took the explosive off and, 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 and returned it, literally returned it to the uh, person who had planted it and killed that person, uh, blew him out the roof, the roof of the car in two persons, and I speak of Shander Burns, one of Cleveland's most, or probably Cleveland's most notorious Jewish racketeer. Um, there were other bombing attempts, um, some of them were, were laughable. And uh, with each uh, brush with death or attempt on his life, his, uh, his reputation grew. And, um, and, and I think uh, several of the mob soldiers were, were really uh, uh, afraid to, um, to get too close to the guy. And that might be one of the reasons that bombs became the weapon of choice back then. And when the, when the big war began, uh, Danny Green and his, his partner John Nardi, um, uh, they chose to take out two of the most capable enforcers uh, that that the mob boss at the time, Jack Licavoli, had. That being Eugene Ciesulow, and the uh, the underboss, Leo Moseri. They, they uh, the, soldiers, the soldiers were definitely afraid of him. It took a long time to uh, to uh, track him down and and, and eliminate the uh, the headache, as they as they call them.
0: Well, the thing that's interesting is I remember reading in your book. That Cleveland, uh, at one point in the 70s, and I didn't know this, I was alive at the time, I was probably five or six years old, but was known as Bomb City, USA.
1: Yes, yes. There were so many bombs going off. Now, it wasn't quite as dramatic as the film. You know, Hollywood uh, dramatizes a <laughs> lot of true crime stories, and we we know that. Certainly case with To Kill the Irishman, and, and it, that movie kind of makes it look like there was a major bombing every day. That certainly wasn't the case, but there were many, many... Bombings um, during that period of time, so much so that the local um, office of the, um, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms tripled their, their staffing uh, to deal with the problem. Um, in fact, it's interesting to note too that um, uh, Lyndhurst, you know, the, the, the suburb of Cleveland where I work, um, had some involvement because they had back then one of the first um, bomb disposal units, one of the first bomb squads in the area. And it's still uh, still an active unit today within the uh, within the regional law enforcement on the east side of Cleveland and uh, Cuyahoga County.
0: Now, um, I do want to get to kind of the end game and, and tell people a little bit about what ended up happening with Danny Green. But I, I do want to recommend that people check out the book and the movie. I enjoyed both thoroughly, and the movie is great fun if you're into kind of mafia stories. I mean uh it is entertaining even though you kind of think is it right to be entertained by uh by mobsters but it is very entertaining if you love true crime but i do want to ask you a little bit about the movie what was it like um dealing with hollywood creating a movie you knew the story you know what actually was the push and pull um did you think they did a good job was it a good experience um what are your thoughts
1: well, I, it was a wonderful experience for me, Jim. I can tell you the, the one key figure for me personally is the original producer, a young man by the name of Tommy Reed, whose vision was to bring the story of Danny Green to the big screen. Um, it, it took a long time. Uh, a lot of movies do take a long time. It's actually 13 years. But he, he you know, he brought on, on board uh, partners, Code Entertainment, independent production uh, company, and um things moved forward and, and, and Tommy Reed did what he said he was going to do. Now had had this been a, a made for T V film, Jim, a made for cable film, I would have been thrilled. But uh when my uh, my uh, book and film manager, Peter Miller, contacted me in early two thousand nine and said the the film had been green lighted, I didn't know at that point. That it was that it was actually going to be a big screen uh, uh, theatrical release movie, and that 's what Tommy Reed promised to do and, and sure enough he he got it done so i am am I am I'm really blessed uh, I was on set for a week um, unfortunately it wasn 't filmed in Cleveland it was filmed in Detroit, and that was purely a um, it was the uh, the uh, the economics uh, and the film financing part of it, and that at the time Michigan had a very uh, a generous film tax rebate, and uh, that made it possible. Of course, you remember uh, the, the economy was not doing... It was the beginning of when the economy was going south um, nationally. There weren't a lot of movies getting made. Right. So that allowed the film to get made. This filmed in Detroit, I was there for a week. Uh, I had I had a ball being um, a part of that and, and meeting some of the actors and actresses involved and just seeing these scenes... That were adapted from the true story, my book, into the film. I, you know, as far as the making of the film, uh, I, wasn't, I was not involved in the actual production of the film. I did not write the um, screenplay, so I had um, r- almost no creative control at, at, at all. You know, which is uh, is not um, unusual when a, when a book is uh, adapted for film. And really, I had no desire. I mean, being a being a cop at the time and, and uh, being promoted to uh, the police chief's office in 2009, I, I really would not have been able to had, have any more involvement than I did. Um, so, uh, but but all in all, I, w- I was blessed. I think they did a really good job with the film. Um, um, but it you know, it is an adaptation. It's based on the true story. It's not the true story. And, um, and I, I give, uh, I give Tommy Reed a, a, a ton of credit.
0: Yeah, I, I really, I can't say how much I enjoyed the movie and how much I recommend that people check it out. I'm, I'm sure it's on DVD now. I don't know if it's on the streaming services or not, but, um, I, I would look it to Kill an Irishman. I, Enjoyed it thoroughly.
1: Now it's on DVD, and they also packaged. Tommy produced a, um, uh, and I, I participated in that, a documentary about Danny Green, and that's actually distributed on the same DVD as the film is. So if you get the DVD, if you, the DVD, if you rent it or you buy it, you've got the film itself, and then you've got the documentary. So it's kind of it's kind of fun to watch the the film first, and then go and look at the documentary and see a uh, much more about the actual true story.
0: Well, I have to have to check that out now. I, I hate to kind of say this because I don't want to ruin the story for people, but um, uh, Danny Green was not invincible. And I, I'm actually reminded occasionally. I will pass by a certain medical building, and it's oh, a yeah. very um, suburban, normal looking medical bo- building. Nothing sinister, uh, but something pretty drastic happened there in 1977. Now, what? Ha- tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, well, we know Dan, Danny wasn't invincible, and I don't think that's too much of a, uh, a secret uh, uh, or, or one that you'd be able to figure out if you didn't know the story once the uh, the film starts playing uh, or you see the previews. But, uh, you know, there were so many attempts to kill Danny Green and his partner John Nardi, uh, who was a uh, teamster figure, or, or a, I'm sorry, a um, uh, yeah, labor union figure and, and also another mafia associate, who uh, partnered with Danny and they were going to try and take over control of of the uh, of the mafia here and numerous attempts and uh, finally I think it was May of 1977 they got John Nardi and um, they, they used a car bomb again bombs were the weapon of choice back then in the meantime, like we said, Danny Green loved to talk to reporters. Well, a reporter went to Danny and said, John Nardi was your partner. He was killed. Are you afraid for your life? Don't you feel that you're a target? And Danny Green went on television and and, and uh, taunted the, the, the mafia leadership here in Cleveland, uh, called them maggots, told uh, them uh, that they, they know where to find him. He's not hard to find. He's over there on uh on waterloo in in Collinwood, on the east side of Cleveland, and at that point the the Mafia leaders were incensed and and, and there were they pulled out you know all the stops and, and and the the efforts to to kill Danny Green intensified and what they were doing was actually borrowing a tactic from the federal government. They were tapping his phone, tapping Danny green's phone with a little cassette recorder and listening to the tape every week or so, trying to get trying to pin him down. It was a that was a difficult thing to find out where and when he was going to be because he would he wouldn't keep he wouldn't keep a, uh, much of a schedule well they finally tracked him down uh, to a dentist appointment he had scheduled at that medical building that we speak of in Lyndhurst um, right off right off interstate two seventy one there and uh, they decided this time to use a a, a bomb, but instead of planting the bomb on the victim's car, they would plant it on a, a throwaway car, or or what they would call a Joe Blow car, meaning it's registered to a fictitious name. It's, it's just registered to Joe Blow, and they would detonate it by remote control. And uh, the, only thing they would, the only difficulty would be getting a parking spot next to Danny, and uh, as you could guess, they didn't have any problem finding a parking spot next to Danny Green, and when Danny Green came out in October of 1977 from that uh, dental appointment uh, and went to get in his car. They, uh, the um, mafia hitmen detonated by remote control. The car parked next to his, and Danny Green was killed instantly. Now, many people associate that with being the story of Danny Green, you know, how he was killed. But really, in a way, Jim, uh, you know, that's, that's just the beginning because of all of the um, uh, the things that would happen, uh, all of the fallout from that murder, the investigations that would spark. And, and like I said, uh, I think in the beginning of the interview, how the, the dominoes would start tumbling. Uh, they said right when, when Danny Green was killed, they were overheard saying, the mob leaders were overheard saying that their headaches were over. Their headaches were finally over. And like I said, they, they had no idea at the time that their headaches were just beginning. <laughs> so that's really, in the story, really the, the murder... In a true story, like in the book, the murder of Danny Green is really only the halfway point in the story.
0: There you go. That's why you should buy the book. Rick (laughs) Perello, what all uh, are you doing these days? I mean, certainly I'm sure you want to promote the the, the books and the movie. Uh, What else is going on? Anything you want to promote? And also where can people find the books and the movie?
1: Well, I tell you one thing I would like to promote, Jim, is that my most recent title is a story called Super Thief, and I am. It, it is the story of the biggest uh, bank burglary, and I stress burglary, as opposed to a robbery, in U.S. history. It occurred in uh, 1972 in California. The bad guys were from Northeast Ohio, and, and I'm I'm just so thrilled to say that that was recently optioned for film. It's in it's in development for a motion picture, and I'm uh, very glad to say that's by Tommy Reed. The, um, the same producer who originally envisioned uh, Danny Green being on the uh, big screen. So, so I'm, I'm hoping, uh, uh, if I uh, would, would be so fortunate that um, Super Thief will uh, also be adapted successfully to film. Um, besides that, I am working on another book. I'm working on the story of Shonder Burns, and, and uh, we spoke a little bit about him being Cleveland's most notorious Jewish racketeer. And uh, he was portrayed in the, film, uh, in the film Kill the Irishman by uh, Christopher Walken. So I've been, uh, keep, been keeping busy at home. And, um, and uh, like I said, I've been, I've been blessed with success in, in uh, more than one area. I'm very thankful for that.
0: And we're thankful for your work. We thank you so much. Hope you'll come back when either that book is out or when your movie, next movie comes out. Hopefully we hope we can talk to you again.
1: Whenever you're ready, Jim.
0: Well, thank you so much, Chief, and thank you for tuning in to the crime scene. We certainly appreciate it. I know I enjoyed this episode, been looking forward to it for years. I hope you did, too. We'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. bye bye